to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews. Today we'll be beginning the book of Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll work from verse 1 down to verse 18. As you do, I want to talk about something a little bit sad. Have you ever heard the statement, so-and-so will never be able to blank? Maybe you heard that of yourself at a doctor's appointment. And the doctor said to you, you'll never again be able to this. Maybe it was have children. Maybe it was walk. Maybe it was see. Maybe even sadder than you yourself receiving that news about your own life. Maybe you've received that news about someone you loved. Maybe it was a child or a baby. Maybe the doctor delivered the news to you and said, you'll never be able to this, this person, this child. It's a sad, sad reality. One of the saddest verses I think we've read so far, I've read so far in the book of Hebrews, is verse number one. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's so sad. Not just those who follow Judaism, but all of mankind, from the really the the fall of mankind, have tried this very thing. They've tried some way, they've tried some angle, some pathway to God, and yet it's true of all of us, apart from Christ, that whatever we try, whatever sacrifice we make, whatever configuration we can configure, nothing makes us perfect, nothing fixes what's broken in us. Nothing allows us to truly approach God. And it's sad. Think about the Tower of Babel. A group of people wanting to build a structure that would allow them to access heaven. Allow them to access the garden, as it were. And yet they were never able to do so. Every single religion, every single pleasure that you've chased, every single desire of your heart is essentially the same thing. It's the Tower of Babel. And it will never make perfect those who draw near. It's sad. And yet... Our desire to enter back into the garden, our desire to be in the very presence of God, our desire to experience heaven itself, heaven on earth, has become a reality, and that is the gospel. Let's read the gospel of Hebrews, if you will. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. This is what the word of God says. For since the law has but a shadow 
of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering he has for, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pause and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, there is no power in my words. There's no power in the wood that comprises this pulpit or even the paper that your scriptures are printed on. Father, the words of life, the words of power are your words. And so we read them now. We give time to that. We set it apart and we ask that, Spirit, you would use these words, plant them deep in our hearts so that we can be shaped and fashioned into your likeness. Father, we pray that we would be changed into a greater and more, more accurate picture and fullness of Christ. But Father, we ask that not just that would take place in the life of the Christians here. But Father, for those who are far from you this morning, for someone who's asking questions, leaning in, Father, that your spirit is drawing them, may as your word is read this morning, may they understand. May they be brought into newness of life, the, re, the new birth by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that this would take place today. We ask it desperately in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. I have probably ignorantly, but I'm going to do it either way, titled 
this little bit of the text that we've just read, the Gospel of Hebrews. Now, there is no the Gospel of Hebrews. You've got the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But this morning, I'm telling you that we see the Gospel very clearly displayed throughout the book of Hebrews, but specifically in these 18 verses that we're looking at this morning. And how does the, the author here piece together the Gospel for us? Well, he tells us about our greatest problem, and our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem is sin. There's lots of things that you face this morning, lots of battles that your family is struggling with. And yet the, the greatest problem that we face collectively or individually, it's sin. But the text tells us that God sent his son as a sacrifice for sins. So we'll move from this great problem of sin to see this great sacrifice that has been made on our behalf. And finally, we'll see that Jesus' sacrifice ensures sanctification for those who believe in him. And isn't that good news? That our sanctification, our justification, it is as sure as the sun. It is more sure than the sun rising tomorrow. And the main idea we'll see really stolen from the book of Romans, is this, that God has done what the law could not do. God has done what the law could not do. He has brought heaven down to earth. He has made a way for us, not by the way of a tower, but he's made a way for us to be in his presence again. And so that first portion of the Hebrew gospel what is it? Our greatest problem is our sin. Chiefly, that's what this passage is dealing with. Largely, that's what the whole book has been about. Sin, our, the, the, the difficulties that we face, and Jesus coming to deal with that. But let's look at verse 10. For since the law has but a, or sorry, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Our sin keeps us from drawing near to God. We saw a parallel with the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. There's a parallel. Man was expelled from the garden still desirous to get back in. And God instructed his people to build a tabernacle or a temple later. And that would, it would hold, it would be the very abode of God. It would be the dwelling place of God in a sense. And yet man couldn't truly enter in. You couldn't just walk in. We've, we've looked at this several times in the last few months. You couldn't just walk into the presence of God. You couldn't just sit down and hang out. The priest would go in, the high priest would go into the holiest place, and make an offering once a year and get out as soon as he could. Why? Because of his own sin and because the sins of the people. That tabernacle was a shadow of the garden. It was a shadow of what man tries to do in the tower, to, to, to get back into God's presence, but he is unable to because of sin. 
Our greatest problem is sin, and we think that there's ways that we could maybe remedy our sinfulness and come to God. Maybe we get our act together by making a sacrifice. Maybe we, in a modern sort of a sense, we get our act together by, you know, going down to Belk and getting a new shirt and maybe a bow tie. That would be wise. And donning that in preparation for Easter Sunday. And then showing back up, maybe donning that bow tie again on, on Christmas. We think maybe that's how we can be uh, alleviate this problem, this remove this issue of sin in our lives. But there's no way for that to be removed in and of ourselves. We see that the law does not take away sin. It's still our greatest problem, even after a sacrifice has been made. The law truly cannot change a heart. We've said it this way, you cannot legislate morality. We've tried it. Here in this experiment of ours, we have surely tried that, but along with all the other generations before us, we can't change a heart by making a law, and all the parents know that that's true, along with the politicians. When you make a rule for your child, it seems as though it only entices them. Not to say that parents shouldn't make rules for their children, but the point is we can't make a law and thereby change a heart. God giving his law to mankind, giving his law to his people, it does not change our hearts. It only serves as a reminder of our sins. That's what we read in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, the sacrifices of the law that address the sinfulness of man in that year, they only serve as a reminder of sins year after year. There is no ritual there is no aspect of religion that can place us in right relationship with God and cleanse us in our consciences from guilt. It's impossible. The book of Romans, speaking of our sinfulness <clears throat> and how expansive the infection truly is, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's sad. We've tried to attain to the glory of God. We've tried to attain to the image of God broken in us. We've tried to enter back into his presence, and we're unable to. And this further underlines the seriousness of the situation that we find ourselves in, our greatest problem being sin, our broken relationship with God. I don't know where you are this morning. Now, geographically, I know around about where you are if I needed to Give somebody your GPS coordinates. But mentally, where are you? You could have thought that when you walked in this morning that your greatest need was finances. Or maybe you came in this morning thinking that your greatest need was health, improved health. Maybe it was a greater reputation. I'm not sure what you came in here thinking your greatest need was. But the scriptures make clear to us that our greatest need is that we be restored to right fellowship with God. That's your greatest need. And maybe it's God's kindness to you this morning that this text in Providence is being read for you so that you can have your, your troubles realigned. And you say, well, I was aware of my financial need, my health need, my relational societal need, but I had no idea that I had this sinful need, so thanks for adding that to the plate. Well, truly, it's a grace to you. 
like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, when he realized his sinfulness, he realized his sinfulness, and he realized a burden on his shoulders, weighing him down. Everywhere he went, the greatest thing that he could think about was that God, the only thing he could think about, was that God's wrath was upon him because of the sin that was on his shoulders. Being made aware of that sin, he spends quite a bit of time trying to have it removed. Whether, whether through legalism, worldliness, or maybe just through despondency and giving up altogether. This fictional brother that you know all too well, Christian, felt the weight of his sin. And that's the first part of the Gospel of Hebrews, that we're all sinful. We all have this great, incredible need can't address in and of ourselves. We can't do it on our own. And yet that's not the only aspect of the gospel. Gospel means good news. And so what is the good news? That we are sinful, but two, that God sent his son as a sacrifice. That God sent his son as a sacrifice. The reality is that the problem of sin has been dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week. It's a bit uncomfortable for us in this modern age to consider blood and death and sacrifices. And yet, this is what God has done on our behalf. The soul that sins, it shall die. God's wrath is upon us because of our sin. And something will pay that price, if not you. And we know that what will pay that price is not the blood of bulls and goats, but only the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. In verse 11, we see this contrast that we've regularly been looking at. And we'll do it again today. I hope you don't become bored with it. In verse 11, we see every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. I encourage you to underline in your Bible. Underline that word stands. Stands. In addition to stands, underline that word daily. Stands daily. Skip over a little bit. Underline repeatedly. And then at the end of that verse, never take away sin. Underline that phrase together. We see four the, four, these four things. The sacrifices under, under the law, they were presented daily. Daily and yearly. Continually, the priest stood when rendering that offering, when making that sacrifice. Why did he stand? Why did he not sit down? Well, we'll find out, but his job never was truly complete. We also see that multiple sacrifices are being offered again and again. Not one sacrifice, many sacrifices. And we can deduce from this passage, that those sacrifices, regardless of how many times they're offered, they can never take away sin. The logic offered a few verses before 11 tells us that had they been able to be effective and actually take away sin, both its penalty and its power, if that had it been taken, in a, the, the power and presence and penalty of sin had been taken away, then the offerings would have stopped. But they did not stop because they cannot take it away. 
In contrast, though, look at the next verse. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, I want to invite you to underline in your copy of God's word. Underline when Christ. When Christ. And then underline single sacrifice. Single, single sacrifice. And then underline sat down. He sat down. And then lastly, perfected for all time. Now contrast those statements. His was offered once for all. And really the culmination of Christ's work is him sitting down. What does that mean when he sits down? He's done. There's nothing more to be done. There's no more sacrifices to be made. There, it's all been accomplished. One sacrifice. And what has his sacrifice accomplished? He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love the way the book of Romans displays the gospel as well. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 11, the scriptures say this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die for us? Because he was our sacrifice. He was the only possible way for that burden of sin to be removed from your back. Your greatest need is addressed at the cross of Christ. Returning to our friend Pilgrim, many have attempted to help Christian, to relieve him of his burden, legalism, worldliness, others just encouraging him to despondency and to despair. But when our friend came to the foot of the cross, what happened to his burden? It fell off of his back. It rolled down the hill and it literally rolls into the empty grave of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our sacrifice. He paid for our sins. Now, you'll probably notice there in the first few verses, verse 5 down to 7, there's a quotation. It's indented. And that quotation comes from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. I want to read that for you this morning. It says, in sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I just want to take a moment as we consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be honest with me. When you read this quotation, does it... Maybe confuse you a little bit. It does me. Read verses, Psalms like 
uh, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, or maybe 1 Samuel, verses 5, uh, verse uh, 15 and 22, which says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in the obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. But there's other passages, Psalm 50, verses 8 to 10, Isaiah 1, uh, verse 10 to uh, 13, where God says, hey, I, don't, I hate your sacrifices. I hate all the things that you're doing in accordance with the ceremonial law. Jeremiah 7 is the same way. Hosea 6, same thing. And yet when you stack those verses up with, well, the law of God, which commands the people of God to make these sacrifices on a regular basis. Maybe you're tempted to say, God, are you a little confused? Have you changed your mind? You, one time you say you don't want any sacrifices, now you say you do. Then you say you don't like them anymore. What's going on? Well, the key really in understanding that God's not confused, the key to helping us not be confused is to remember what were the purposes of the sacrifices that God first instructed his people to make. Well, when we think of death really first coming into the world, we think of man's sin there in the garden. Eating when they shouldn't have been eating, disobeying God. And what took place in that moment? They were hiding. They were aware of their sinfulness. And in that moment that they were aware that God leaned in, spoke into their lives, what did God do? He provided for them something that was far better than what they had and still not as good as what they would get. He provided for them clothing made from a creature that had been sacrificed on their behalf. That's what took place. And really that's a foreshadowing of the tabernacle where many animals, creatures that had not sinned, would be sacrificed. Picturing what God again would do in the future. And so he instructs his people to proclaim this good news, to foretell what would come in the future, that God would send his own son to die in our place. And so you say, well, what does God really want? Does he want a sacrifice or does he want obedience? Well, initially, what did he want? Did he require that clothing be made there in the garden? No. What did he require? Obedience, a heart that was pure, a heart that loved God, a conscience that was clean. He wanted a relationship. And yet, man broke that. And now what's God's response? To the soul that sins, it shall die. And in the day that you will eat of it, you will surely die. What's God's response to that? It's the sacrifice of his son. And so truly, what does God desire most? In sacrifices and offerings, you have not delighted God, he says. But you have given me an open ear. What does it mean to have, have been given an open ear? Well, the Hebrew phrase there actually means that you've, God dug out your ear. It's this picture of God creating something out of clay. And then shaping and fashioning an ear and a body. And what can the ear do that's now been opened up? Well, now it can hear. 
right in line with the promises that we read of the new covenant, that you'll be given a new heart and a new mind, and God's word will be written on those things. That's all tied in together with this ear that's been dug out, this new body that has been prepared. And so does God want the sacrifices or does he want obedience? He wants obedience. And yet our problem is we cannot, apart from Christ, give him obedience. And so what does God require? The sacrifice of his son. And what's beautiful is his son is sacrificed, having never sinned, having fully obeyed. We have a new heart because of his heart that he had even before his sacrifice. And so we see in this text, we see the sinfulness of man. That's our great need. Then we see the sacrifice of God, that he wants obedience. The Son of God is obedient, even to the point of death, becoming our sacrifice, dying in our place, extending his righteousness to us. And that leads us to sanctification. This third point, Jesus ensures sanctification for those who believe in him. You'll remember that first century group of Christians, that first century church that received this letter, and now we've received it many years later, and we've enjoyed it and, and grown, but that first group that received this letter, they were tempted to do something. What were they tempted to do? They were tempted to abandon God. They were attempting to abandon what God had declared for them. God had shown them his son. He had sent his son. And the scriptures say he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. Verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all by that will what's the will here it's the will of God it's the will of the father perfectly obeyed in the son by that will that perfect obedience we who the church of Jesus Christ we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all I want you to notice some things about sanctification particularly in connection and contrast with the book of Hebrews and even the book of Romans. I want you to notice that when the author of Hebrews speaks about sanctification, he's using it in the positional sense, not the progressive sense. You understand there's a different sort, there's different uh, sorts of sanctification. There's the progressive sense and then there's the positional sense. The positional sense uh, speaks to the way that God views us right now. And it's very similar to Paul's term, justification. Now, progressive sanctification is really never in view in the book of Hebrews. Progressive sanctification, when, the, when, when sanctification is used or sanctify is used, it's not speaking of the, the slow process by which God, through his spirit and word and community, shapes and fashions us in real, visible, tangible ways into the image of Christ. That's not what the book of Hebrews is concerned about when it uses the word sanctify. When it uses the word sanctify, it means positional cleanliness before God. It means legally declared righteous, legally cleansed. 
So there's these two sorts of sanctification. Our sanctification is sure. Another way we could say that is our justification is sure. Just as if we had never sinned, that is sure if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14, though. It says, for by a single offering himself, he has perfected for all time, that's positional sanctification, bringing us back into right standing with God. He has perfected us for all time, those who are being sanctified. And there, in a sense, he's looking towards progressive sanctification. So those who have been, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, positionally sanctified are also those who are being progressively sanctified. So we are justified by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are legally declared righteous. We are sanctified as the idea here in Hebrews. We are spiritually declared clean. And because of that, what response should we have? What, what sort of logic can we draw from this? exactly what's given in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. So that first century church is saying, yes, I've, I've received many sacrifices on my behalf before Jesus. Now I've received the sacrifice of Jesus. But in addition to that, I think I need to continue in order to avoid condemnation, in order to continually perpetually enjoy sanctification and justification, I need to go back to the temple to receive something perpetually. And Romans 8 says to that, and all of Hebrews says to that, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need nothing more. Yes, your sin is much. It's many. But his mercy is more. You have nothing more to telestai. It is finished. There's no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has already set you free from the law of sin and death. Because of what Christ has already accomplished, Hagerstown Church, you are free from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin? Well, maybe you could think of the law of sin as the power of sin in your life. You've been set free from that. Your sin, it's a burden on your back. It's a snare on your foot. But you've been set free from the law of sin because of the sacrifice of Christ. But not just the law of sin, also the law of death. What's the law of death? Death is the penalty for sin. What weighs on your mind, what weighs on your back in connection with the sins that you have already committed against the holy, righteous God is that the wages of sin is death. And that's what each of us have to look forward to aside, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. But for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. We have been set free from sin. We've been set free free from the penalty of death, does not have any power over us, and its penalty has been removed. And that's what we see at the end of this couple verses that we've read this morning. God speaking 
says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, we may get confused when we read that. Does God not remember our sins? Well, some people say that's what it means. It literally means that God just can't remember them. But if that's true, then if God can't remember your sins, then it's almost as if God has forgotten the purpose for the cross. And if God truly forgets our sins, then he might as well forget the cross. And yet that's not what is actually taking place. This is not speaking of God's inability to recall what you have done in the past that Jesus has paid for. It's actually the opposite of that. God remembers those things, but he doesn't hold them against you. And that's what the, the verse is saying, verse 18 it's explaining, verse 17, God not remembering their sins. He's not remembering their lawless deeds anymore. Why? Because where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's as if it's been blotted out. It's been marked paid. Paid. Imagine you receiving a bill in the mail we get good mail, we get not so good mail. We get mail that we enjoy and we rip open with joy and eagerness, hoping that it's some sort of a check maybe that you weren't expecting from the late great uncle or someone that you didn't know. Or maybe there's been a clerical error down at the bank and they're going to give you this. Or maybe you just passed go and now you're collecting your $200. But sometimes we open the mail and it's not something that we enjoy opening. Maybe it's a bill. Maybe it's something that we weren't expecting. More than we can even afford that month. And you work together with your family. You scrap it together. and You're able to make that payment. And what happens whenever you get the receipt of payment back in the mail? Well, you can go back to that bill that you had received earlier. It sort of brought fear in your life and was heavy. And you can mark on that paid. And you can destroy that letter if you want to, but there's no need. You can forget about it if you're able to, but again, it doesn't really matter. Why? Because that, that bill, that piece of paper has no power in your life. It has no power over you. And that's what this means. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. You go down to your bank and you say, hey, I, re or I want you to think about that payment I made two months ago. Do you remember that? They're not going to say something so foolish as, no, I don't recall. Well, of course they recall that you had a bill that was due, and yet they'll also hopefully recall that it has been paid. And you don't need to worry about that any longer. And that's the reality that we face in the gospel, that our payment has been made. Christ has made that payment on our behalf. Positionally, we're cleansed, and we will be cleansed for all of eternity. And even practically, he is now making all things new in the life of a Christian. In the life of the Christian church, he's making all things new. He is continuing to fulfill those new covenant promises of giving new hearts and new minds with his word written on them. What does the scripture teach us? What does the gospel 
of Hebrews say? That God has done what the law could not do. That's the main idea this morning. God has done what the law could not do. Think back to that initial idea that we considered. It's sad. Hearing those words, so-and-so will never be able to blank. Will never be able to enter into God's presence apart from Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. And he has done what we could not do. He has done what the law could not do. He has brought heaven down to earth. And we can go to the Lord, enter into his presence because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we celebrate this truth. We celebrate this reality that we have, weakened by the flesh, tried to enter into your presence. We've tried to come to you. Even now, we still desire to add to, but there's nothing that we can do to allow our sins to be removed. Nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us, each of us, to embrace the gospel beginning with our greatest need being our sin being removed. Father, in my life and in the life of everyone here, we wrestle with the temptation to sin. We wrestle with sin's power in our life. And Father, even more than that, we wrestle with the penalty and the fear, the guilt of that penalty. Would each of us this morning look to Jesus? Would we come to the cross? Would you give us the faith to believe that if we come to Jesus, if we accept the work that he has done there on the cross in faith, if we'll accept that, that we can truly be forgiven for our sins? Father, would this church continuing to continue to hold that dearly? Would we hold it tightly? Would we never move to the left or to the right? Would we never doubt its efficiency? Would we never doubt its power and time? One sacrifice for all time. And Father, we, again, as we prayed earlier, if there's someone here this morning that feels the weight of their sin, Father, if it's bowing them over low, it won't allow them to be free. Would they look to the cross of Christ? And as they look to that cross, as they look to the cross of Jesus, would the burden roll off of their back? Father, would the shackle be broken? Would the power and the penalty of sin be removed? And would we be able to come all together into your presence with great confidence? That's our hope. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you've allowed us to see you a little more clearly today. We pray that our affection for you would continue to increase as we meditate throughout this week and continue our study in the book of Hebrews. We ask all of these things in your powerful and mighty name.